Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Welcome to UFOs Above Canada, a nighttime podcast series exploring the people, the events, and the concepts that surround the Canadian UFO experience. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the next installment in Nighttime's UFOs Above Canada discussion series. In tonight's episode, I'm proud to be joined by investigative journalist and fellow UFO nut Daniel Otis. If you follow UFO news as it relates to Canada, you already know Daniel either by name or by his work. His articles, which appear on a variety of Canadian news sites, generally feature a fact-based, no-nonsense journalistic approach to Canada's UFO cases. His most recent piece, which was published by CTV News, explores five recent UFO incidents that resulted in a Canadian Air Force response. Fortunately for all of us, Daniel was able to carve some time out of sky watching and access to information requesting to join us here on Nighttime and elaborate on what he learned about the Canadian Air Force chasing UFOs above Canada. So let's get into it. Daniel Otis, it seems like every, I don't know, every three or four months, my inbox gets flooded with emails about a UFO story that you're breaking that involves the Canadian government or some kind of, you know, current breaking news related to UFOs in Canada. Uh, I dare say you've done it again over the last week or two. I've been getting hammered with requests to have you back on the show to talk about your recent article that outlines five times that the Canadian Air Force responded to UFO and I'll do air quotes, quote unquote, threats. Uh, let's let's start at the beginning with with this story way at the beginning tell me a bit about you and your work just for people who are new to you know what we're doing here yeah no thanks for having me back i, I think i talk to you more than some of my relatives now so <laughs> it, it's good to be back um i'm a canadian freelance journalist i've been working as a journalist for over a decade my stories have appeared in major outlets like the globe and mail toronto star vice ctv news etc uh, in April 2021, I published my first story on UAP. I was sort of inspired by some of the reporting I'd been seeing from the New York Times. And uh, I ended up filing a bunch of access to information requests here in Canada, which is our version of FOIA, Freedom of Information. And lo and behold, I started getting in reports and procedural documents from the Canadian Air Force, as well as uh, Canadian transportation officials. So um, from April 2021 to now, I've done well over a dozen stories on the subject. And the most recent one was trying to break down a response I kept getting from uh, the Canadian Air Force. When asked about UAP uh, cases and whether or not they investigate, you know, for the past year and a half, they've returned to me with this one line, uh, which they say, quote, we do not typically investigate sightings of unknown or unexplained phenomena outside of the context of investing credible threats, potential threats, or potential distress in the case of search and rescue. Um, so while the vast majority of reports I've been finding show that there really wasn't any response, uh, this line I kept getting from the public affairs people at the Air Force made me think, well, obviously there are some threat and potential distress cases uh, that they did respond to. So that's what this most recent story, uh, which I wrote for uh, CTV News, 
that's what it's about. It's about, you know, the exceptions, the rare cases where there was a federal response to um, a sighting or a detection of something unknown uh, above or near Canada. Yeah. And it, I dare say it doesn't seem to be that rare because it's when generally when you're talking about, I don't know, the government's interest or response to the UFO phenomenon. Uh, oftentimes you're going back to these cases, you know, back in Roswell in the whatever in the 60s, you know, the government, do this government document shows it. What I found so compelling about your recent article is these five cases that you outline showing the Canadian government not only being interested, but in some of these cases, like scrambling fighter jets. The these are all like modern, like the last, I don't even know if you go back 10 years in this. I think the oldest one is like 2016 was yeah. the oldest case. Yeah, so this is like recent modern stuff where the government may say officially that they're not researching or investigating, but they're certainly responding to. I, I would think that if you can pull five cases from the last, you know, six-ish years where fighter jets or, you know, that sort of response uh, happens, you know, that's that's something people could be concerned about and, you know, certainly raise an eyebrow at. I know when I read through the article and went through the cases, I was amazed by it. Uh, I'm going to start with... With the first one, uh, we'll kind of go through them in chronological order and, and break each one down. The first one, actually, not too far from where I am, it's it's a it's a December twenty second of two thousand and sixteen case above Newfoundland that involved a plane taking evasive action to avoid some kind of unidentified object in the sky. And uh, you can tell me a bit more about how you came upon this story, but it seems like it first came from. A C A D O R S report. What is Cadors? Uh, uh, Cadors is um, this is a aviation incident database that's fully public and online, and that's uh, run by Transport Canada. The acronym is short for um, the Civil Aviation Daily Occurrence Report System. Um, so basically, you know, if a plane hits a bird, mechanical failure, drunken, unruly passenger, anything like that, it gets logged into this uh, aviation incident database. This database also forms the foundation of my research um, by combing through thousands of reports going back the past 25 years. I've been able to find a couple dozen unusual sightings from pilots. But I didn't find this one. This one wasn't labeled as a UFO report in the system. And this was one that I actually... Uh, didn't even come to my attention. What, what, the way this uh, incident came to my attention was I filed a access information request to try and get the most of the or all of the, you know, UAP related reports that are held by the military. Uh, what they, they didn't exactly send me what I'd asked for, but they sent me log books uh, from a Canadian Air Force squadron. And this is the squadron that's, you know, tasked with monitoring and uh, monitoring North American airspace for incoming threats. So in their in their logbooks, it you know it showed that there was the word scramble popped up, uh, the the term YBG, which is the airport code for uh, Bagotville, Quebec, where um, our CF-18s on the East Coast are located. And you know I was able to piece together through this log that there was this incident. And then I went back into Transport Canada's public system and found the corresponding report. Oh, okay. So I, I assumed it would have went the other way. I no, it, it usually goes the other way. Usually yeah. I find the public report first, then I file information requests to get more details. This was a case where I actually 
found the details first and went back and found the public report. Interestingly, the publicly available report that's on the internet doesn't mention that uh, F-8, CF-18 fighter jets were scrambled. It just says that, um, you know, that this American Airlines flight saw, uh, you know, a possible aircraft. Um, and it also doesn't mention the evasive action. The evasive action and the scramble always revealed through the declassified Air Force documents. So the the public facing report in essence said that an American Airlines flight from London to New York was more than 300 kilometers south of Goose Bay, New, uh, Goose Bay Labrador on the night of December 22nd when it reported a possible aircraft off its left side and below. So that to me, like, you know, when you're picturing that, basically what the plane is reporting is that it sees something slightly lower than it to its left side. Uh, that is kind of the public, the information contained in the public facing report. What does the f- the access to information request reveal that makes this such a significant sighting? Maybe you can just outline like what you learned. <clears throat> yeah, uh, I mean, I'll quote a little bit from my story here. Um, basically, these declassified Air Force logs describe the American Airlines flight quote taking evasive action when an unknown aircraft appeared off its left side. Uh, They checked radar and the radar data was quote, inconclusive. And so they responded by scrambling fighter jets from Quebec to investigate. You know, this is the region where this occurred around Labrador. This is, you know, a relatively remote area where you're not gonna have a great deal of air traffic. And there's not, you know, a lot of, there's very few population area centers out there and the ones that are there tend to be quite small so uh, i guess in the uh, air force's calculation if a passenger flight is reporting a near miss that constitutes a serious safety threat um so you know with the safety threat in mind and then unable to detect it on radar they launched these f-18s to investigate now the according to the declassified uh, documents i was able to look at the the F-18s were not able to see this object, but two other aircraft were. There was a Lufthansa and a Swiss flight that were near the Gulf of St. Lawrence that both reported seeing something very similar to the American Airlines flight, which was a sort of possible aircraft with a white rotating light. A white, yeah, when I think aircraft with a white rotating light, I'm picturing classic flying saucer. So in my mind, I'm convinced they exist now. Uh, based on the sighting. But the the idea that a plane reports seeing something, a commercial airline reports seeing something, they can't pick it up on radar. The next step is to scramble fighter jets to get out there and take a look. That just seems like a, a large response. Like, does that seem atypical to you to see in these reports this heavy of a mm-hmm. response to an unidentified object? It's, it's not common. I, I mean, most of the reports I see, uh, what generally happens is a pilot reports something to air traffic control. Air traffic control relays that report to the Air Force, and it also relays it to federal transportation authorities. Uh, then, you know, these the details from these reports are documented, but there's generally little to no follow-up. Um, I, I think what makes this case different is that the American Airlines flight reported taking having to take an evasive maneuver, so which clearly means that the safety and the lives and the security of the crew on this on this aircraft were in jeopardy. They took an evasive maneuver. This is you know not something uh, large you know commercial aircrafts typically have to do. So uh, it clearly, in the calculus of the Air Force, this constituted a safety threat and. 
And I think launching, you know, Air Force assets to investigate a, a safety threat is totally warranted. I think it, it, it was probably the right move. And eva- when you say evasive action, I don't know a lot about aviation, but I'm assuming when a commercial airliner is in the sky flying, it's completely on autopilot and other than like the takeoff and the landing. Um, evasive action, I can only Im- imagine, could me- must mean like turning off that automation in the pilot actually grabbing, you know, some kind of controls in making something happen. Like, is that kind of what you're expecting had occurred here? Yeah, that's my understanding of how something like that would have happened. So, you know, they saw something and, you know, they the pilots forced to grab the controls and, and, and dodge whatever, whatever this white rotating light or whatever this object was. Let's jump over to Prince Edward Island for the second report. And this one, uh, being a Nova Scotian uh, interested in UFOs, my heart is very much in you know, the story of Shag Harbor. This one kind of has some some shades of that. It involves a search and rescue helicopter or helicopters being dispatched to the shore of Prince Edward Island on September 3rd, 2018 to investigate an object going into the water, which again has uh, calls back to what happened in Shag Harbor all those many moons ago. Tell me about this PEI of response and event. Yeah, well, d- details here are a little bit scarce, but um, according to the documents I found, there was a concerned citizen on the shore. Uh, they saw something entering the water. They couldn't, they weren't able to confirm if it was an uh, aircraft or a helicopter or something like that. They um, And they reported this uh, to search and rescue authorities who responded by launching a cormorant search and rescue helicopter to go scour the North shore of Prince Edward Island. Um, also, local firefighters went out in a fishing boat to assist in the search. And in the mission report, they said they, they saw nothing and nobody needed any rescue. But, you know, somebody on the, on PEI saw something go into the water and it alarmed them enough that they felt that they had to contact authorities. Now, I, I asked the Air Force about this and, and their response, uh, you know, seemed pretty reasonable. They say that we frequently, you know, will investigate potential search and rescue cases. So if someone sees a life jacket afloat at sea or sees an empty boat being tossed in the waves uh, and adrift an abandoned boat, you know, often they'll launch search and rescue resources to see if there is a potential need for a rescue. So in this case, somebody saw something go into the water and, and for them, you know, that was enough justification to go check it out to make sure if anyone needed any rescue. They weren't there to investigate, you know, a quote unquote UFO, uh, but they wanted to ensure that it wasn't an aircraft or something that crashed. That's interesting. I would be curious to know how often something like that happens, that they, they're responding to some like an object entering the water. Like in the, in the case of Shag Harbor, it was a bit different because it was multiple people had seen an object enter the water. So it was much more credible. But in this case, for one person to report it, or at least it appears to be one person, I, I, I can only hazard to guess the cost to um, uh, send a, you know, a search and rescue helicopter there. So it's a, it's something <clears throat> that they appears to have taken seriously. Yeah. And, you know, again, it seems to be a warranted response. We, we don't see responses like this typically you know, from Canadian authorities, but here there was a clear, you know, the the statement they kept giving me is, you know, 
one of the instances where they would investigate is, uh, you know, potential distress in the case of search and rescue. And, and this this qualifies for that. Um, it seems to be a legitimate response. I mean, if I, I I'm glad that, you know, authorities want to investigate these things from a search uh, safety perspective, because, you know, if I was, uh, if, if I saw something go into the water, I imagine I'd be pretty alarmed too. Yeah. And we have to also keep in mind that this person was saw it and was concerned enough that they actually took the time to report it. So it's, you know, I wouldn't even know where to begin. If I saw something crashing into the water, sure. I don't even know who I would phone to begin with. So uh, whatever they saw, it was meaningful enough for them to take the steps. And yeah, I think the a response would be warranted. Now, this next one I'm going to move to, and oddly enough, we're sticking around the East Coast. We've done Labrador, PEI. This next one also is in the area of Newfoundland. This is a November 21st, 2018 incident um, of an unknown track. So I guess to start, we should understand what the, what a track is versus like a sighting. If, you, if you're talking about a track, what, what would that be in terms of aviation yeah so a track basically means something that's being picked up on radar in this case what they're referring to is norad radar norad being the joint canada u.s air defense group that's basically responsible for continental security so there were you know some Can at a canadian base they were uh monitoring the these radar feeds and and they picked up an unidentified track, an unknown track that was, you know, pretty steadily moving towards North America from the direction of Greenland. So, um, you know, the uh, planes usually uh, have transponders on them. So if you get a track, you're sort of able to, you know, identify planes or, you know, they tried to make radio contact, nothing happened. Uh, so C again, CF-18 fighter jets were launched to investigate. They were launched from the same base as the one we previously discussed from Bagotville, Quebec. Uh, they went to the scene where this thing was supposed to be. They saw nothing. And uh, Air Force authorities later decided that uh, it wasn't an actual object, that it was, uh, quote, spurious radar data, uh, which was caused by a faulty radar installation on the coast of Labrador, uh, which is a, a NORAD radar station there. So I, you know, I, I talked to some former uh, Air Force folks, and they found it a little odd that uh, the radar would generate a false positive like that because, you know, the radar system is part of what's called, um, you know, there's this north warning system where it's uh, basically a chain of radar installations that stretch across northern Canada and into Alaska. And this this was developed during the Cold War to detect incoming threats from the Soviet Union, like, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles and, you know, bombers and things like that. So they detected this thing steadily, something steadily heading towards North America. And because there's, you know, overlap between these different stations, I was told that uh, it's very, it's highly unlikely for them to generate a false positive. But that was ultimately the explanation that the Air Force landed on. I'm not a radar guy. I'm not a radar technician. So I, I, I can't make that call but you know in my conversations that's what was expressed to me but it also turned out though that the nearest radar station to this thing was undergoing maintenance around the same time so i mean it's it's, it's a plausible explanation um but it's also a, a perfect example of a response that's really warranted you know these folks sitting at those norad radar stations probably in north bay ontario 
detected something coming in they couldn't identify it and their way their response was to immediately scramble fighter jets and th this is you know these men and women in uniform did precisely i think what they should have done uh we want our air force to respond to clear threats you know i i don't think Canada necessarily should analyze every UFO case in a defense and security lens as the US government seems to do. But this, this was a case where, you know, it could have been a credible threat. It could have been a jet. It could have been anything. They, so they launched fighter jets to investigate. Wow. It's um, it, the sci-fi movie fan in me uh, sees this play out in real time as like, what is this on the radar? We're checking with our other bases. We don't have any planes up there. Send fighter jets. And then they're flying through the sky, not seeing anything. It's a uh, turns out to be, uh, at least according to them, a faulty, some kind of faulty radar thing. Either um, inexpensive uh, malfunction, because I'm again sending the price of gas and everything now to send some CF-18s flying around. It must be very expensive. But um, either an expensive kind of malfunction or a brilliant, a brilliant cover up. They find something, they shoot it down, they collect it, and they're like, it was just a faulty malfunction. Don't let Daniel Otis find out about this. <laughs> I'm going to go with the second. Well, well, you know, the report explaining it came out uh, well before I started digging into the subject. So, Which which makes it even scarier. Like they, <laughs> It's like Terminator, you know, like when they, they're going back in time to find uh, John Connor when he's a kid. Oh man, <laughs> um, I don't I don't know if that's what's happening here, but either way, it's uh, to find these stories and be able to pluck them out like this. It's uh, it's kind of amazing, and it's as a journalist, Canada's um, willingness to open up for these access to information requests is amazing because it's to be able to just find this stuff and get. Of course, they're heavily redacted, and we'll get to that in the next one, I believe. But to find this stuff and be able to snoop around is uh, is quite quite amazing. Yeah, no, it's it's when I started getting returns on my information requests, you know, before I started writing on the subject, it was it was exciting. It was exciting to see that data existed. Uh, in this case, though, you know, it, I had to put the pieces together a lot. Um, for example, nowhere in any of the documents does it say explicitly CF-18 fighter jets were scrambled. You know, it just mentions that uh, there was Air Force assets deployed out of YBG, which is the base in Bagotville, Quebec, and the only Air Force assets there to launch would be CF-18s, you know. There, there's a lot of putting the pieces together. No, nothing is explicit, usually nothing is explicitly described, uh, but it, it's, you know, it, it's exciting to find documents and to get returns on it. And I think part of the reason we're able to get this stuff in Canada, uh, whereas in the United States, it's very difficult to get military case data uh, it, it's precisely because in Canada, it's not really perceived as a national defense and security issue. And I, I think it's important that we don't, you know, encourage our officials to perceive this as a national security and defense issue, because the moment that we do, you know, a lot of the data that I, you know, the types of data I've been able to obtain is going to disappear. Um, under freedom of information laws, you can withhold data on national security grounds. And as you see in the United States, you know, we, we see these sort of broad overview discussions of, you know, military UAP reports in the US, but very rarely do you get the nitty gritty case data because it, it's just all withheld. Um, so, you know, it, it speaks to how our governments and military perceives the issue here. And I think 
I, I, I like the way they perceive it. I'm, you know, by pointing this stuff out, I'm not encouraging the military by any means to investigate more resources and in investigating UAP. Uh, I, I'm just very pleased that, you know, with the amount of case data that they're able to make available in most cases, where there's other incidents that are, I think, as you might bring up shortly, there's other incidents that are just a little more mysterious. Let's dive into the mystery. On September, in September of 2020, there was an unknown in the CANR. So I, I learned a lot in reading about this sighting or this event or incident. First of all, I realized how difficult it is to interpret data on a document that is 95% redacted, it appears. But I've also learned about the Canadian NORAD region. So this incident takes place in the Canadian NORAD region. So maybe explain what that is, first of all. Yeah, so NORAD, as I previously mentioned, is, um, you know, the North American Joint U.S.-Canada Aerospace Defense Group. You know, they monitor things approaching the continents. They respond. Every once in a while, we see stories in the news, for example, of, you know, fighter jets responding to Russian bombers getting too close to the continent. That's all NORAD's work. Um, the Canadian NORAD region is basically Canada's realm of responsibility under NORAD. So they, Canada is tasked with monitoring uh, the approaches to North America through the Arctic and East and West Coast, for example. But most of their efforts are focused on, you know, Arctic areas. Um, so in this case, you know, I, in one of my uh, access to information requests, I got this incredibly cryptic message. Uh, it just used the word unknown in the canar was in like the subject line. And then pretty much everything else was redacted. Um, so but you know, from seeing unknown in the canar, you can infer that something unknown was detected in the Canadian NORAD region. So once I saw that, that message was from September 22nd, 2020. Once I saw that message, I went back and filed additional uh, information requests to obtain uh, digital logbook entries from specific Air Force units and squadrons that I know respond to these sorts of sightings. So I, I was able to get those digital logbooks from the Air Force back. Again, heavily redacted, but there was a recurring uh, statement in there, something to the effect of, have all assets returned? Have all assets returned? Have all assets returned? So to me, you know, that was one of the only things that was not redacted, but that made it clear to me that there were Air Force assets up in the sky that day, right? So, you know, I was able to basically put pieces together and further as an unknown detected in the Canadian Normand region, there were Air Force assets airborne, but what was, you know, what was detected and, you know, what happened with the response, I didn't know. So we, we published the story uh, and I had been asking uh, questions about this document in these cases for months. I'm even in the midst of an appeal process for those redactions that more information revealed. So, the, but the story was published, you know, uh, public affairs with Air Force and NORAD said uh, they needed more time to get back to me. Um, I tweeted out the document um, the other day and then about within an hour or two of tweeting out the documents and uh, I, I finally got a response from uh, Air Force and NORAD Public Affairs. And what they said was during joint Canada-US Arctic operations, 
there was a planned uh, sort of training type thing happening in the Arctic at the time that unknown tracks were detected approaching North America and CF-18 fighter jets were, you know, were sent to go investigate. And again, like the earlier case I mentioned, they, they determined that it was spurious data in the end. So mm. yeah, within about in less than two hours after tweeting out these documents the other day, I got something of an explanation. That is uh, weird, though, that they're watching. Like oh, the, they're, the, they're paying attention. But listen, I, I'm engaging with the NORAD, Canadian NORAD Air Force Public Relations, you know, on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. They're actually awesome people. Uh, they previously didn't provide any response to this document citing the existing redactions, you know, because the redactions were made on the grounds of national security. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, I understand why they weren't able to provide me an answer. And I also understand once I put this material out there and brought attention to it, I understand why they would, you know, now want to try and do it. But generally, I find the public affairs people at uh, the Canadian Air Force and NORAD to be just excellent. They're very responsive. They answer what they can when they can. I understand there are constraints. You know, it's a military operation. They can't tell me everything about everything they do. You know, it could jeopardize some of their operations. In this one, with it being involved in NORAD, it's, I'm, I'm assuming it's especially complicated where anything that happens there, you know, it's Canadian-American joint kind of responsibility and decision-making. Yeah, and, and you so you can also redact uh, things on the grounds of, you know, information that was in, uh, obtained in confidence from the government of a foreign state. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyone who, just to go a little deep into the freedom of information nerdiness here, uh, anyone who's tried to get NORAD documents in the United States is going to, you're going to have an exceptionally difficult time. Because NORAD is a binational organization, it's kind of exists outside of the laws of Canada and the United States, which means NORAD itself is not subject to our freedom of information laws. So the last sighting on our list here, or the last, I'm calling it sighting, the last incident on the list that I want to get into is one, I think we may have talked about this before, and this is one that comes up often. I think it's it's one of the more interesting modern Canadian UFO incidents. This involves a another uh, aircraft taking evasive action uh, above or near the Billy Bishop Airport, which is basically downtown Toronto. This is on November 14th of 2016. And they were evading, the aircraft was evading what's described as like a, like a metallic donut that was deemed not to be a balloon. So maybe before we get into what you learned about the response to this, tell me just like the basics of, of what actually happened there. Yeah, so this was uh, November 14th, 2016. It was the daytime. Uh, it was a Porter Airlines flight. Porter is a regional airline that operates mostly in eastern Canada in the eastern U.S. Uh, the flight was from Ottawa to Toronto. It was over Lake Ontario approaching the downtown Toronto Island Airport. And while it was over the lake, it the pilot noticed uh, quote something that appeared to be solid, approximately five to eight feet in diameter and shaped like an upright donut or inner tube. Uh, it appeared the object wasn't moving. It was right ahead in the flight path. So the pilot opted to basically dive under it. It took a, an evasive maneuver. 
Um, the flight attendants were in the process of, you know, securing the cabin for arrival. So the passengers had their seatbelts on, but the flight attendants didn't. And they got thrown into the cabin structure when the plane, you know, took this uh, dive. Uh, and yeah, and, and then they landed, you know, the the flight attendants, uh, they were checked out at hospital. They were okay. And the story actually made headlines at the time. You know, it, it appeared on CTV, Toronto Star, et cetera. I was actually working at the Star at the time. And I, I, re I recalled this incident happening. Um, and in the end, they couldn't identify and figure out what this thing was. They said it was not likely a balloon. Uh, the investigator said uh, that the description of the object didn't match any, you know, commercially available drone that they were aware of. Um, and there was a bit of an investigation precisely because there were two injuries. It prompted an investigation from the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, which looked into the incident, analyzed, you know, the flight recorders, uh, analyzed all the available data. Uh, they determined that they couldn't figure out what it was. And then they sort of closed the door on doing a, a more fulsome investigation. And they just re basically released about a paragraph explaining what happened. Uh, it, based on, I, I reviewed some uh, internal emails uh, that showed that the object may have been picked up by military radar. Uh, internal emails that I've seen also show that the pilot didn't report it right away. Um, in addition, uh, they also show you know, that there was a lot of effort to try and figure out. There were a lot of images being shared around to try and determine what this was, but they couldn't figure it out. And they, you know, said in these internal emails, I saw that had it been clearly identifiable as a drone, there would have been a more fulsome investigation because if there, if it was a drone, there could be lessons learned and, you know, perhaps actionable, uh, actionable outcomes from the perspective of safety, right? Mm -hmm. But because they couldn't identify what it was, it was sort of, case close yeah and it, it just hearing the description of it sounding like you know a five to eight foot in diameter inner tube or donut shaped object um to me it just kind of screams like you've probably seen those metallic balloons that you know it's your 30th birthday so you have a big three and a zero it, it almost sounds like one of those is what i kind of initially thought maybe floating from downtown toronto or something but they they have said that they don't believe it's a balloon i wonder how that was ruled out, um, because that to me, like that seems like a more plausible explanation than a drone. Where any drone I've seen is generally a, you know, a, at most like the size of a shoebox, you, mm. know, you know, something of, of that nature. But it's interesting that they've said no to balloon. Yeah, no, it, it seems that you know uh, a mylar zero could have got away from a twentieth birthday, right? Like it, it's plausible. It could. There are some drones that kind of have similar shapes um there's some drones that you know that are helium filled drones that you know would sort of have like a ring balloon type thing with you know a motor in the center mm -hmm. maybe it could have been something like that I, I i don't know you know the transportation safety board of canada determined that they couldn't figure it out uh and you know i was able to email the investigator um you know i think about a year ago i i sent him an email and asked him if they're any updates or, you know, had they identified it since? And the answer was no. Um, so who knows, you know, mm -hmm. dr drone, balloon, possible, but it they, they were never able to determine what it was at the end of the day. But regardless, uh, there was an unidentified flying object in the sky that led to evasive maneuvers being conducted and injuries. So yeah. 
on its surface, if you just boil it down to that, it's, it's a fascinating case. And now everyone we've talked about today or tonight, whenever someone's listening, we're hearing of a credible sighting that leads to either injuries or fighter jets being scrambled. Yet, for the most part, there's still unanswered questions and a lot of mystery in some of them. And I find when when that's the case, that's kind of when conspiracy theory finds something to grab onto to fill in those blanks. When, when you look at cases like these, I could see any one of them with someone with a bit of an imagination or maybe some creative writing can turn one of these into the next big UFO case. It, it, what I'm getting at is, do you think there's anything different between an incident like this or do you think an incident like the ones we spoke about could have the potential to be, you know, the, the next big case that we're all discussing? Because it's like you got, you know, the unexplained nature of them. You have the government's involvement, fighter jets. Like, what is the difference between this and, you know, Roswell? Uh, maybe the difference is uh, imagination. I don't know. <laughs> if you see in my work, uh, I try to take a real, a very strict journalistic document based approach, you know, uh, I, I try not to infuse any conjecture or speculation. I, I try to just put out what the documents say, what was seen, what was the response, um, without trying to get into too much of what it could be. Um, mm. So if we know, see a Daniel Otis article that concludes with like, it was probably aliens, you got some serious evidence? <laughs> it, it, it would take some very 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 compelling clear as day evidence for to make me say anything like that okay. I, I that's not a con you know it I, I think for me what's interesting uh and i think i've said it on your show before is is the mystery you know like we we have credible witnesses seeing things they can't immediately identify sometimes in rare cases there is you know some sort of follow-up uh and the things remain unexplained um uh, you know, for me, the, the mystery here is what's compelling, not necessarily trying to prove a theory or a hypothesis, just exploring the mystery and, and just, you know, exploring the data that would uh, bring us towards answers. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you're always working towards whatever your next piece or your next story is. What what has got your attention right now in this space? Uh, you should see my list. <laughs> so uh, I, um, you know, I've done nearly 200 access to information requests, yielding well over 2,000 pages of material over the past year and a half. So there, there are, are more stories yet to tell. Um, for example, uh, I'm talking to some interesting witnesses, uh, you know, who who may want to do uh, uh, go out and be public with some of their stuff. Uh, there, there's more documents. Uh, I think I'll have more to say, for example, on that Porter Airlines flight. Uh, there's, um, yeah, there's, there's always more stories to tell. And I think the, uh, the other thing that's important, you know, I'm also been spending a lot of time and attention on, you know, talking to folks who might be able to steer this conversation in the right direction in Ottawa. Um, you know, there's certain members of parliament who've become very vocal uh, on this issue and who are very inquisitive. And, uh, you know, what I'd like to see happen in Canada is have some sort of scientific study, or if not some sort of scientific study, then at least have proactive disclosure of data so those who are interested in researching can. Uh, I can't emphasize enough how I do not want to see this issue become militarized in Canada. You know, the second uh, we encourage our military and air force to investigate this like the U.S., 
say goodbye to the type, the kind of data I've been able to pull. It'll disappear. Um, you know, I think we're lucky in Canada that we don't have an official UFO program right now because it allows for more access to data. You know, I, I, I'm very concerned about uh, that militaristic stance and it being adopted uh, here in Canada because it'll it'll spell the end of uh, you know civilian public research on the subject. Now, for for people out there who are listening to what you're doing and want to follow along, you know, step by step as you go through this, where's the best place for people to find, you know, your past articles and, you know, what you're up to? Yeah, uh, follow me on Twitter at DSOTIS. And that's where I'm the most active. And I'm frequently, for example, if I write a story and I get some additional documents, you know, that add some more details, I'm not going to write a whole new story on it, but I will post those documents on Twitter for interested people. Uh, you can also find me on uh, my website, danielotis.ca, uh, has links to all my stories on the subject. Search me on YouTube, Facebook, whatever. Uh, yeah, you can find my stories and hopefully enjoy them and learn a little bit about UAP in Canada. Yeah, and you, the article we've been talking about mainly tonight was published on CTV, but you, um, but you write for a variety of different places. So I think like following you personally like on twitter or whatnot that's the probably the best way to find articles you publish anywhere as well as updates to them absolutely yeah. twitter and uh, my personal website most of my work on uh you know uap stuff has been for vice as well as ctv news but on my personal website i have one uh, page there that has a list of all of my uap stories all together in one spot with links i want to thank you for joining daniel otis and i for our discussion but before we part here, I have some thanks. A big thanks to Daniel for sharing an evening with me and with you, the listeners at nighttime. A shout out to Monty Data, who contributes the music for this series. But most importantly, I have a massive thank you to everyone who listens to nighttime, as without your interest and your support, nighttime would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, the best way to pitch in is by subscribing and listening on the premium feed. And not only does the premium feed fund the creation of the show, it'll give you a lot more content than you'll find here on the free feed as I'm adding exclusive content regularly and maintain a full back catalog of nighttime episodes only on the premium feed. So for about the price of a cup of coffee, you can go premium at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And on the topic of that, let me thank the newest subscribers. Shara, Kyla, Christine, and Sherry, thank you for your generous support. And one last thing here. If anyone has any story ideas, wants to give feedback on the show, or would like to contribute a voice memo to be aired and responded to in an upcoming episode, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com contact. I hope to hear from you. But until then, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte.